So because I'm a nicer person than Cheryl <laughs> and Vinny, um, you, will, you will get a talk tonight. Uh, if it weren't for me, one of you would be doing it. <laughs> and I still love Cheryl and Vinny. So we're all good. Uh, I'd like to um, ask you a question and just pause, however you're uh, seated is fine, and I'd like you to just, uh, like to invite you to reflect on uh, why you're sitting retreat right now. Why are you here? And if it's helpful, you know, why did you become interested in Buddhist practice at all? Why did you come on retreat or maybe more generally, why are you interested in uh, Buddhist teachings or meditation practice? And uh, it's not likely that we'll do this going forward as the retreat space quiets. Um, but I'd like to just um, not do away with, but just for a couple of moments, kind of stretch noble silence and invite anyone who is inclined to share um, just one word or a phrase that came to mind in response to that question, reminding you that uh, there's no evaluation happening, just a genuine interest in uh, what's true for you. Anybody willing to share something that came to mind? Great, thank you. To alleviate my suffering. Alleviate your suffering. Thank you. Great. Yes, please. To deepen my practice. Deepen your practice. Thank you. Uh-huh. The practice makes sense and is helpful. So you've already seen some of that. You've already learned that to an extent. Great. Good. There were other hands that I've already heard. Yes, please. To connect to my true nature. To connect to your true nature. Anybody else? Anybody else who's a little bit scared to use their voice want to... Thank you. To make peace with the harm I've created. To make peace with the harm you've created. Thank you. In the back. To reduce the craving. To reduce craving. Great. Maybe one more? Oh, yeah. Um, to recognize that a lot of my anger is fear. Uh, 
So already some insight in that. Yeah. Yeah, good for you. Yeah. Great. Thank you all. So one of the things I like to do is um, pose questions to a group and uh, and answer them myself. So we're not uh, we're not exempt uh, from the same questions, right? So I thought I would share a little bit uh, what was coming up for me uh, throughout the day as I thought about uh, talking with you tonight and. There's a few themes here that some of you who have practiced with me in the past will, will be hearing again because I'm, I'm going back to uh, when I was first interested in the practice. So if I, if I span out and look more thematically, um, I came to the Dharma because I wanted to uh, make sense of or understand pain and suffering. and also because I had what I can only describe as a very unique uh, and very strong, um, I had a kind of remarkable belief, in a sense, that uh, significant well-being was available to us as human beings. I don't know where that belief came from. I can't say necessarily that my family uh, imparted that. I don't, certainly don't think my culture did. Um, but I, I, I do feel in a way kind of fortunate that um, there was a sense of possibility uh, instilled in me uh, somewhere. Existentially, uh, I think I was horrified uh, and uh, I still am on most days of not living a meaningful life. Um, and um, this sounds kind of noble in a way, but uh, it created and continues to create uh, a deep fear of not being good enough and not uh, doing enough. So it sounds helpful and it can be. It can have a very positive uh, trajectory toward it. Uh, but there's still a lot of identity in that. Uh, there's a lot of confusion in that. So this, um, this difficulty, uh, or the, the difficulty with this kind of fear or compulsion, uh, is that what is meaningful keeps shifting. Uh, this is not something that's constant. Uh, thus, I think, to... Uh, live a spiritual life, if you're open to, to that kind of language, necessitates the cultivation of patience and curiosity, um, what we might consider a great interest. I think Cheryl has already used the word interest, at least curiosity. And, um, I think if we are going to understand something about the truth, something about our true nature, um, we're going to have to slow, stop, pause, but also be in incredibly interested, incredibly open in a particular kind of way that, that practice uh, both demands of us and helps us cultivate. Once we try to pin the world down, once we try to uh, pin ourselves down, make any kind of final resolution, define ourselves, define spirituality, um, we've taken a step backward. 
we've, we've, we've lost some ground in a sense. Uh, for me, at the beginning, uh, trying to understand suffering and uh, pursuing uh, this well-being that I, I had some belief in but was evasive, uh, was experienced and expressed in, in multiple different ways, and I want to try to explain a couple of those. Prior to uh, any contact at all with Buddhist teachings, I went to college preoccupied with uh, racism and poverty and chose to study sociology. I thought that might be a way to um, begin to tackle that uh, project, interest, concern, problem. Outside the classroom, one of my first insights was that all of the people of color in my school were on the uh, football team or the basketball team. So I wondered, I wondered simply why, why are people of color not represented anywhere else? And in my second year of college, I was living in a, a I guess a community home of sorts with a residential advisor and the residential advisor in my home was the academic advisor to the football team. And I couldn't pass any of my math classes. <laughs> and uh, still can't. And uh, it was creating a real issue and would have kept me from graduating. And so I, I went to him for some help. And um, he said, it's, it's fine. I, I, I totally get your back. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, there's this one particular class, and you just need to sign up for it. And I said, okay, well, I'll sign up for it, but then how does that help? And he said, well, I've got all the tests and all the answers. So I signed up for the class, and then every time there was a test, I went to him, and he gave me all of the, he gave me the tests and all of the answers. So I began to wonder, um, like, what is happening here? You know, is the university um, incentivizing certain people to come to the school and ultimately uh, profiting, in the case of the football team, quite significantly, but then not offering um, the skills that would be needed to uh, get along in the world after college, knowing that the statistics for playing uh, football or any kind of sport and earning any livelihood from it for a college athlete is uh, almost, you know, like zero, like a little bit better than zero. So more questions. In college, and still prior to any relationship to <coughs> Buddhist teachings, I found poetry and was consumed by image after image after image of beauty in the world. Uh, and this was a relief and uh, double-edged, if you will, because it added to the existential tension how would I reconcile the beauty of the world with its injustice? How would I reconcile the beauty of the world with its injustice? And still, without any exposure to Buddhist ideas, I had a general hunch that greed and a kind of gross ignorance or confusion 
that I could sense but couldn't articulate was responsible for many of the world's problems. While I was interested in and aware of certain social issues, I was not adequately aware of whiteness and patriarchy in my place in the social cosmos. Nonetheless, I became uh, nothing less than incensed. I went on the attack against corporate greed. I even attacked my father, who had a career in corporate America and provided for my family in that way. I went on the attack against uh, policy and actions that I felt were threatening the natural world. I became hypercritical of educational institutions of all kinds. I could not find one place that satisfied my own yearning to learn about myself and to learn about the world in a way that went uh, below surface level. I became interested in ethics and instantly noticed that there was not many people with whom to share that interest. So I felt alone. Before I found anyone who qualified as a spiritual mentor, which took quite a long time, the worst part of all of this was that there was no one to talk to. It was all feelings, all confusion, with no outlet. In hindsight, I realize, and this is uh, much more of a, a recent acknowledgement, um, I realized that I was also struggling with identity and gender. Specifically, the images that I absorbed in which I had begun to embody of the masculine didn't easily fit, and often didn't fit at all or align with my fascination of poetry and writing or what I'll just call the spiritual life. That I, that I read a classic novel, A Lost Lady, uh, written by Willa Cather and immediately changed my major to English, was a secret. <laughs> that I later elected creative writing concentration in poetry became something else difficult to fully own. And when I went to Europe to study Jane Austen and was the only male in the, in the course, I felt alone again. I still use, I think and hope, in a healthy way, both Dharma practice and, in particular, Sangha, to combat uh, this pain of aloneness in the world. I remember something that Vinny said last year, and it's not the kind of thing that um, I would assume most people would remember with all of the teachings, the core dharma, in a sense, that is offered in these dharma talks. We tend to take home the Four Noble Truths, the Three Characteristics, the Eightfold Path, acceptance, kindness, compassion, etc. I was sitting up here and Vinny was giving a talk and he said, quote, I actually really love poetry 
end quote, and then he shared a poem with the group. And this really stuck out. And it came to mind as I reunited this year with, with Vinny, and of course Vinny's already shared some poetry with us. And I don't know uh, exactly what prompted him to include actually in what sounded like uh, a, conf a confession or maybe permission. Nor have Vinny and I talked about this. But as a man and as a colleague and a friend of Vinny's, I wondered and I'm wondering, as I reflect on some of these themes in my life, what did his and our cultural inheritance teach us about masculinity, about intelligence, about being strong, about poetry, about art? When I began to read books about compassion and meditation, I had to keep them in the realm of the intellect. Another burden of patriarchal masculinity. If I softened too much, my strength would erode. I would be vulnerable, I could be harmed. I might not get my needs met, I might not be taken seriously. So with all of this personal confusion, how could I be happy? How could I contribute to the world in a way that made sense? Still to this day, I don't tell many people how much time I spend gardening or my interest in ikibana, Japanese flower arranging. The guys at the gym who spot me when I bench press don't understand it. Mm -hmm. But neither do many of the male friends who I now meet in Buddhist communities. Even here in the Sangha, I still feel a bit alien. On the worst days, I want to run away. I want to hide my face. On the best days, I stay where I am and I look people in the eye with no apology. Dharma practice gives us our ground in a groundless world. It gives us our original face back when we can't sort out who we are. There are many reasons why we might sit retreat, right? And you've evidenced that, and there are as many as people in this room. They're all valid. They're all necessary. We start where we are. We enter retreat where we are. We enter the fourth retreat where we are. Some of us might be here to reduce stress, to learn to work with physical pain, and that would be appropriate. This would be a good place for that interest, that agenda, that intention. Some of us might be here to get a break from the busyness of life, to unplug. The ancient hermit monastics went deep into the wilderness to get away from what several thousand years ago, they reported was the busyness of life. 
Some of us come to assist recovery efforts from the many things we become addicted to. Some of us come to sit with questions about the future. Some of us come to find a way to integrate or heal events from the past. I think someone alluded to that in their sharing. Some calm, some come rather to calm an agitated mind. Perhaps all of us. On Saturday morning, I was in I was in Boston, and um, the the whole week was. I tend to be a creature of habit and have a certain routine in the morning that includes quiet time and a certain amount of time for meditation practice. And I've been fortunate to be able to protect that space. And I was moving and. There was furniture deliveries, and there were people supposed to fix things that didn't fix things, and there was a lot happening at the meditation center, and I had to get up and go right to email or go right to the phone and um, be on meetings. And um, Then uh, my partner and I went to the grocery store, and I was... Actually, before that, my partner and I got in a kind of heated <coughs> argument and over you know really, really trivial stuff, and we both just looked at each other, what is, what is happening right now? And uh, then I, we were in the car trying to find a parking spot, and I was saying some uh, un- unusually horrific things about all the people who weren't pulling out fast enough to be <laughs> a spot. And I was, just, you know, I was just watching my mind, and then you know, watching my mind and reflecting on the week, and 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 I had I had said some very unskillful things to my partner, and I had expressed in her direction. Uh, just a unique amount of uh, frustration and impatience, and, and uh, we were talking. We were talking about this, and one of the things we came up with together is that uh, my the form of practice in my life had had broken down, actually, and and I don't always know this about myself when I'm like if I'm practicing a lot, and someone says, "Well, what's your practice doing for you right now?" I might sometimes have a hard time answering that question. Um, And I realized on on Saturday morning, simply the way the practice offers a sense of containment, uh, uh, offers some level of self-regulation, the way sitting and being with myself is a sort of composting of of, uh, difficulty. And if that doesn't happen, that accrues, like, that accrues, right? Like, there's a sense of, like, that builds, you know, and and I wonder when I have these kind of moments in my own life, I you know sometimes I think like, wow, like most of the world is living that way. No wonder we're all honking our horns at each other and much much worse, fighting each other, right? Caught up in greed, right? Some of us come to practice to reunite with sangha and, and deepen spiritual friendships. And of course, to study and practice this true Dhamma that we read about in the canon, this true Dhamma of possibility. So we might say, if we wanted to, to give these, this set of reasons or intentions a category, we might say that uh, these exist in the relative domain. 
These are appropriate, uh, shared by uh, many, if not most of us, um, and central and essential to our practice. And there's a whole other category, there's a whole other domain of reasons or intentions to come to practice that we get directly from the Buddha and from the Pali Canon. And one of those is concentration. Uh, The possibility of calm and stability. Who wants calm and stability? Yeah. This is the fruit of concentration. And so I just want to name that. The mind becomes less agitated, uh, less uh, tempted by thoughts and feelings and emotions and sights and sounds. Right? There's a, there's a focusing of attention and the mind calms and then the body relaxes. And at a certain point, a stability can set in. And and it it becomes actually more difficult to disrupt that calm. Another possibility, uh, particularly uh, that we we put ourselves, I think, in, in closer proximity to on retreat, is insight itself. Uh, Understanding that leads to wisdom, understanding that frees the mind of dukkha, of discontent. This is an understanding that sees clearly through one's own uh, direct experience how it is that we cause suffering for ourselves and other people. And in a sense, naturally coinciding with this seeing is an understanding of what we can do or often not do. Right? to alleviate dukkha or distress. I forget who one of of us um, mentioned, um, I think it was this morning, maybe Cheryl, I mentioned the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which in essence is the map that we're using to guide you through this week-long retreat. In the Majjhima Nikaya from the Pali Canon, that sutta starts, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method, for the realization of Nibbana. In some instances, putting this here would be controversial, and I would open myself to scrutiny. I think we do you an injustice if we forget or choose not to offer this as a possibility. I think we take, if we do so, what is good from secular mindfulness and conflate it with the true Dhamma. I think collectively we fail to carry forward an ancient tradition. We make possible what the eco-psychology field calls cultural amnesia. 
cultural amnesia. This is defined as a kind of uh, double forgetting. Uh, Eco-psychology is interested in the relationship of human psychology and the natural world, specifically how our beliefs contribute to the decline of the natural environment. And the eco-psychology uh, community tends to be invested in preserving indigenous and earth-based ritual and ceremony and tradition. And uh, cultural amnesia s says that there were many, many, many ways of knowing um, that are part of our history and heritage as a human species. Many ways of knowing about ourselves, many ways of knowing about the world, many ways of knowing about how to keep peace and harmony within ourselves, between ourselves, amongst other species. And as time went on, um, we forgot those ways of knowing. We forgot how to implement and facilitate those rituals and ceremonies and practices. And we became more disconnected from the earth. We became more disconnected from vehicles for peace and transformation. And that was really bad news. But then more time went on and we forgot that we forgot ways of knowing. And we live in that world now, all of us together. So one of the questions I ask is, what happens if we forget the great possibility offered to us in these teachings? What happens to the world that we live in? The Buddhist tradition also gives us a list of qualities or skills or mind states that are the fruit of this practice and that are skills and tools to be cultivated alongside mindfulness as an aid to mindfulness to assist the development of insight. I won't go over all of them but list just a few. The first is giving or dana. The function of dana is that it destroys attachment to things, physical things, ideas and beliefs that hold us back, that obscure a vision of awakening. Dana manifests as non-attachment. So when you let go of the narrative or story or the need to resolve the future through your thinking, you're actually being generous to yourself. I'm going to argue you're being generous to the whole Sangha. I'm going to argue that you're being generous to the wider community of which we are a part. Number two is morality 
or sila integrated into the precepts that we took last night. The function of ethical conduct is that it destroys unwholesome actions. And it manifests as purity in one's actions, good deeds. Deeds that when we see them incline others toward virtue. Deeds that when we are near them make us feel safe. No need to be guarded. No need to question if insight and compassion are real or true. We understand that they are. Wisdom, number three of the Buddha's list of perfections, paramis. Wisdom is panya, and panya sheds light on the truth. It manifests as non-confusion. Number five, maybe I will read them all. Number five. Virya, or energy. The characteristic of virya is diligence. And I don't want to set you up uh, in such a way that you start pushing. And we're going to be here for seven days. Some diligence is going to be required. I'm interested in gentle diligence. What is that like? And you can experiment with that. This is, a, this is a time of experimentation. What would gentle diligence look like? One teacher describes uh, the function of virya as bracing one up. That's their link, bracing one up. This is persistence. This is continuity in practice. And in the same sutta, the sutta on the four foundations of mindfulness, uh, the Buddha mentions continuity, I forget exactly, 22 or 23 times, indicating it's very important. So when when the schedule says sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, in a sense, that's the only thing to do. That's the only thing to do, right? And when you go to the bathroom, literally doing it mindfully. Mindfulness, in a sense, is continuity of awareness. And the reason we struggle, one of the many reasons that retreat can be hard, but one of the reasons we struggle is because we don't have continuity of awareness. well, at least for myself, when I'm on retreat, I, 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 I work and I work and I work and I get some mindfulness. And then I applaud myself with a break. And I kind of take it easy. And what happens is the mind really loosens. Right? And then all those preoccupations and thoughts about the past and the future rush back in. And then I, and then I almost, I don't have to go back to zero because the, the, you know, the bar has been... Elevated in a sense, but but I, I kind of have to start. You know, it's like it's like start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. 
And one of the things I've learned over the years is that, that like, you know, distraction leads to distraction, greed leads to greed, you know, delusion leads to delusion. Mindfulness leads to mindfulness, which leads to mindfulness, which leads to mindfulness. And, and so we can establish a kind of moment, a kind of um, wholesome momentum through persistent or continuous application of mindfulness with everything we do. And at a certain point, that sense of being disciplined falls away, and it's really easy. When people come to interview, they say something like, mindfulness is happening on its own. Right? And they've reached a certain place in the practice when um, it, feels, I don't, it feels a little bit like autopilot took over. Mindfulness is just very strong. You still have to guard the senses, but mindfulness got very strong. So this is a possibility for us. Number seven is truthfulness, satcha. Its characteristic is not to mislead each others, not to mislead others. Uh, on retreat, not to mislead yourself. I might have, I, 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 if you were here, you might have remembered last year that I, I said that I think insight develops by way of um, vulnerability, transparency, and honesty. Number eight, resolve, aditana. This is critical. This, I think, the, the dana is number one on this list of paramis, but, but my own sense is that aditana holds them together and is the foundation uh, for the development or cultivation of the rest. Adita, the characteristic of aditana is the resolve in undertaking virtuous and meritorious deeds for fulfilling the other paramis. Resolve in undertaking virtuous and meritorious deeds for fulfilling the paramis. The function is to overcome all opposition and obstacles that lie in one's path. So sign up for that one. <laughs> Aditana. Resolve. What would gentle resolve look like that's not grasping or clinging or pushing? So check out the manifestation of Aditana. Firmness in one's stand. Firmness in one's stand. This can be understood as blamelessness. It's a, an alignment of intention and action. And a couple of familiar ones. Number nine, loving kindness or metta. The well-wishing attitude for you and others to be happy. This manifests as a helpful attitude. So at any time during the day, you can ask yourself, what would be helpful to me? What would be helpful? What would be kind? Ask your, I invite you many times, what would be kind? What would be the sweet thing to do for myself? 
And equanimity or upekka is, uh, in a sense, impartiality. Not for or against the things that happen to you. How many times did you want something today? Some kind of experience that you didn't get, right? How many times did you have some kind of experience that you didn't want? In a sense, equanimity is exchanging our preference for certain things for a preference for awareness itself. We, we, we practice this idea that it's sufficient to notice and be aware of what's arising without needing to change it. And when we get good at that, the mind becomes equanimous. It doesn't... Um, it, what, we, what we saw once as positive and negative are now value neutral. They're just the things that are happening. And neither is better than the other. They are all objects to be aware of. They are all objects that come and go. They are all objects that reveal the true nature of mind. They are all objects that free us. What we need to see is the arising and passing away. We don't need to see pleasant things or things that we want. We just need to see the rising and passing away. So this list from the Buddha is uh, the fruit of practice. And they are also skills to be developed and applied as part of formal practice. So retreat is a very precious opportunity. It's a very precious time to focus our attention on practice, to focus our attention on the present moment. In the evening liturgy at some Zen centers, um, and this is not verbatim, but there's a mention of not squandering precious opportunities. Not, do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. Many of you I talk to throughout the year and those conversations often revolve around when you can finally get to your next retreat. You're here. And in six days you won't be here. Retreat is a time to discover or remember that one of the most suitable ways to tend to future concerns is in the present. With a clear seeing mind less polarized by attachment and aversion. Retreat is a time to discover or remember that one of the most effective ways of transforming our relationship to the past is through kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. Qualities developed alongside insight. And I think retreat is also a time to sit with life's existential questions. Not to think about them per se, but literally to sit with them. Sitting with them 
means being aware of what the questions are without looking too hard for answers. Sitting with questions means being aware of them without any requirement at all for an answer. But we have to have some modicum of faith that this could actually work. So this takes a risk. This, there's a risk involved, right? One of the ways we know a risk might be useful is by reflecting on the truth that some of the other ways that we've tried to accomplish these great feats have not yet worked. What else will work? Ironically, we have to give up the idea of freedom in order to be truly free. Because experiences of true freedom are revealed to us in our willingness to not know. And, as Cheryl also said, through our persistent observation. Novelist Karl Ove Nausgaard wrote, Whatever it is that reveals itself may well be something already known. For there is hardly anything uncharted in the human psyche or in the world anymore but it has to show itself unguardedly with a kind of trust. It's like with the hedgehogs here in the garden. There are two of them. And if I want to see them as they are by themselves, I have to sit perfectly still in a chair and wait until dusk. When they emerge from their hiding place, and if I don't move then, they sometimes come all the way up to me. And I see not only their rotund, bristly bodies, their black eyes and black snouts, but also their way of being present in the world, their slow snuffling and shuffling, their cautiousness, which at times turns into excitement and greed, even that of a slow nature. They don't see me. I see them. Awareness takes time to cultivate. Freedom is not something achieved in one meditation period or even one retreat. Beauty evades us even when it is in front of us unless we've trained ourselves to see it clearly. Just last week in Boston, I was, um, I was looking at a painting called The Hub um, by a Boston, young Boston artist who I met. <clears throat> and he was explaining the painting to me. I was, um, wanted to know the story behind it and he said well I you know I was in this apartment in the south end for some time and um, I had this I had this view of the city that I I had never seen Um, and so I just started painting it and over the years of living there I continued to see it from more and more angles and what was just some buildings and railroad tracks became 
incredibly, uh, an incredibly compelling study. And then he said, I, I, I realized um, as I met with other artists in the city that, that if, I could, if I could get a slightly different angle, I would be looking at the city and painting something perhaps uh, from a perspective that no one had ever painted, as far as he could tell. And then he explained, you know, where he came up with the name, the hobby. He said, you know, everything comes, if you look in the center of the painting, everything comes to, everything, the, all the energy rushes into the center, and you can, you can feel it. And he was, he was right. There were all these train tracks that converge. And, and, and I said to him, like, when I look at the center of the painting, I feel a sense of movement, almost speed. And he said, yeah, that's it. He said, everything's coming together in the center. And he said, if you really look, it's like the organs in the body. Right? right, he was so excited to tell me about his, um, his learning, how he had arrived at an understanding of the city from this angle. And I said, Adam, how the hell did you get the view? He, he, it, was a, it was a downward angle um, from a place where I didn't think there was any buildings. And he kind of smirked and he looked at me and he said, he's got long hair and a big beard, and he said, <laughs> Drone, man. Drone. <laughs> I was like, wow. Like, just so invested, you know, like sitting on top of a building, flying a drone, like hour after hour just to get the right angle, you know, to see something that no one had ever seen. And then to try to articulate that, you know, to, to try to embody that, right? It took him six months to paint that painting. Six months. <clears throat> Norwegian painter Edvard Munch painted the sick child in a little over a year. The same writer I referenced earlier, uh, Nausgaard, uh, wrote a biography of him. Nausgaard writes, the question I posed was why only Munch chose to go in that direction and paint that way, and why not any of the other young painters who were active in Christiana, later Oslo, at the time, many of whom were clearly more talented. There must have been some incongruity between his experience of reality and the dominant way of depicting it, an incongruity so great that he couldn't simply accept the existing painterly idiom if he wanted to be true to himself, but had to fight against it, working his way blindly inward, and give up until he had brought about something external that corresponded with his inner experience. Nosgaard in his biography proposed that the artist painted to heal loss and recreate faith in this world. Is it not the same for many of us who practice Dharma and sit retreat?
We are carrying forth an ancient tradition in choosing to do this. If you're here for any of the relative intentions, might you be open to the task of awakening? If you're here for awakening, might you be prepared to face fully all that is mundane in your life? Seeing it as the path to awakening. Yoga teacher, researcher, minister, pianist, director of numerous programs at the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, wrote, what do you fear most in this life? What do you fear most in this life? What is your biggest fear right now? Stephen Cope responds to his own question. When I pose that question to myself, the answer is this. I'm afraid that I'll die without having lived fully. Okay, I'm also afraid of pain and of dying a difficult death, but that's for later. Mostly, right now, I'm afraid that I may be missing some magnificent possibility that perhaps I have not risked enough to find out that maybe I've lived too safe a life. So how does practice work? Specifically, how does retreat practice pull us fur? How, how does retreat practice work? It pulls us forward. It pulls us forward. I had the opportunity about a month ago to see a jagged little pill in Boston. Anybody, anybody see it? No. Great. I recommend it. Um, highly recommend it. Jagged Little Pill um, deals with racism, denial, delusion, addiction, gender and sexuality, and sexual violence. They took uh, Lanus Morissette's album and um, created a musical that was a evocative commentary of contemporary our contemporary lives. <clears throat> I was talking with some folks at dinner the first night and, and I said something like, um, the, the musical, it, it, in a sense it pulled me forward or pulled me up one rung on 
an invisible awareness ladder, not because of new ideas or new concepts, but rather because of the way the heart moved and opened and aligned with what my mind knew was true or right or good. When wisdom and compassion are joined, action becomes imperative. That's my sense of retreat, right? It pulls us forward in some way, very naturally. Through our effort and practice, we purify our mind. Ultimately, we develop virtue. Isn't that the kind of world many of us want? to find ourselves in. Virtuous actions free us from craving and suffering and virtuous actions brighten the world. Virtue is one of the ways we see evidence of the Dharma unfolding. Virtue evokes and mirrors our potential for well-being. Virtue makes the world a little safer. It allows us to relax. In the Dhammapada, it is written, of all the fragrances, sandalwood, tagara, blue lotus, and jasmine, the fragrance of virtue is the sweetest. <laughs> 